everybody, and welcome to the classroom, uh, your lit circle, brought to your home. Uh, I'm Haley. I'm Brett. And today we are talking Chamber of Secrets, the second book in the Harry Potter series. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a, this one's a doozy. Uh, not to peel, uh, peel, uh, yeah, not to peel back the curtain too much so far, but uh, we had a lengthy discussion on how exactly to summarize this one uh, because of there's. It is jam packed, and it really and and I've I said that I've said this a couple of times. Like this is probably my least favorite book in the entire series. Um, I genuinely think it's just bad because she spends so J.K. Rowling spends so much time in this book, kind of setting up every other book to come after it. Mm -hmm. There are subtle hints to every book ahead of it from here on out, like. We'll, we'll jump into a couple of those, of course. Um, there really is no way to summarize this one. <laughs> this is just going to be a plot synopsis for you. Um, we're going to go just chapter by chapter and give cute little one, like one to two sentence summaries for each one. We're just going to popcorn back and forth and we'll yeah. see how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Brett, would you like to start with the worst birthday? Yes. Yes, I shall. Um, all right. So, start, uh, starting out, um, Harry, uh, Harry's back uh, back at his home, if you want to call it that. Um, he's, he's just, it's on his birthday. He's turned uh, 12, uh, but they really don't care. Uh, and he's sad about that. Uh, and then he's sent upstairs. Uh, and he finds somebody else there after he had a very sad day. Popcorn, uh, popcorn you. Okay. <laughs> okay, Dobby's warning. Uh, so basically, turns out Dobby's the reason Harry's having a bad summer, aside from the whole Dursley thing. Um, and then Dobby absolutely wrecks the dinner party that's been happening downstairs, um, Leaning for Harry to A, get threatened to be expelled from Hogwarts, and B, for the Dursleys to just ground him forever. Uh, the Burrow. All right. Uh, so Harry, uh, Harry's just, just moping, uh, having like a little bit of a broody moment when Ron uh, pops by and knocks on his window. It's like, hey, we're breaking you out. Uh, and he whisks him away from his house to the, to the Weasleys. Uh, showing off their uh, the burrow for the very first time, their house, um, showing all the showing all the wacky stuff with his father. Uh, I guess real quick, uh, his father is also like obsessed with Muggle things and doesn't really get it quite right. But you know, he's got his heart's in the right place. <laughs> okay, flourish and bots. So first off, Harry doesn't understand basic wizarding things um, and ends up in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, to see kind of the the Malfoys being the Malfoys um, and getting ri rid of like spooky gross things um, and then of course they run into Harry er, Harry and Ron run into Hermione on Diagon Alley and buy all their books and they run into the famous the spectacular Gilderoy Lockhart who Miss Weasley is just in love with. Whomping Willow? Alright um so Whomping Willow uh, there, everyone's getting ready to go to Hogwarts. 
However, um, due to Dobby, uh, Harry and Ron can't go to can't go through the wall to nine and three quarters. So they ride once again in the magic car uh, that Mister Weasley owns, but get caught in the Whomping Willow, thrown against a brick wall, and then they are caught by the teachers and sort of uh, sort of uh, scolded for what happened. Okay, Gilderoy. <laughs> Let's try that again. Gilderoy Lockhart. Um, so this is the chapter we see where Ron, of course, gets a howler for stealing the car and crashing it into the tree. Um, and they really get to interact with uh, Professor Lockhart here, who, surprise, is a professor, uh, teaching defense against the dock arts. Um, every, like, female student is in love with him. Uh, every other student hates him. Um and Harry has his detention with Lockhart uh, signing fan mail. And, yeah. This is also where we see... Yeah, that's it. That's it. We're cutting the chapter there. Yeah. <laughs> Cut it there. Um, uh, then Mudbloods and Murmurs is... Uh, they explain, they explain uh, Quidditch a little bit more. They're in the, uh, they go in the locker room and like listen to uh, how to do some stuff. Colin is there. Uh, who becomes a lot more important later on. Uh, he's accused of being um, a spy for Slytherin, which I still really don't think has much base, but we can get into that later. <laughs> uh, we also learn from, uh, we also learn a nice, a good old nice slur uh, for Muggle-born wizards, which is Mudbloods. Um, and then they are also, uh, then for crashing into the car previously, they are called for detention at the end of this chapter. Ooh, that's also where uh, where Ron vomit vomits up slugs. Oh, you're right. It, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and he gets taken to a uh, uh, Hagrid's cabin to like get to finish vomiting up slugs. Yeah, to finish. Okay, uh, which next... leads into the Death Day party. Yeah, so Death Day party is where we see first off Jenny Weasley starts looking real sad and pale, uh, but we're not given any context to that yet. Mm -mm. Um, Harry volunteers to go to nearly headless Nick's Death Day party. And uh, he takes, of course, Ron and Hermione with him uh, to this ghost birthday party-esque thing. Um, and then, of course, that leads into them walking back to the, um, to the common room after Harry hears a voice um, to uh, Filch's cat, Miss Norris, hanging by her tail, petrified, literally. And then next to writing on the wall. Okay, so, yo, so in writing the wall, we, we get a little bit uh, more information on sort of Parcel Tongues and uh, Salazar uh, Slytherin themselves and the Chamber of Secrets. Uh, all, all, basic, all basic stuff that I, I don't feel like we need to cover too much. Um, but then uh, Harry finds out that he's like, uh-oh, I'm the, uh, he, he's a little worried that he has a Parcel Tongue and the last person is supposed to be the heir of Slytherin. Uh, so they are trying to, uh, and then they find uh, the writing on the wall and try to figure out where it exactly came from. Uh, and then later on, they uh, try to figure out more on who is the heir of Slytherin uh, and blame the only Slytherin that really gets much attention, Draco. Next on to the rogue blung, uh, bludger. Um, of course, um, we see, yet again, just Lockhart being bad at his job. Um, first off, voluntarily signs this little note for Hermione and them to <laughs> get out this like very, very like dark magic potions book. Um, and then, of course, during the Quidditch match against Gryffindor or against Slytherin, uh, Harry gets got by a blood, uh, bludger, 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 
blood yeah. so that word gets got with some noodle arm which wouldn't have been the worst except lockhart's bad at his job and <laughs> harry doesn't have any bones anymore and that's yeah. where we find out dobby's just trying to save harry um next up is the dueling club all right so dueling club at the beginning they start uh looking for some of the uh some of the materials for the polyush potion um but a, a little bit after uh, he did some shenanigans uh, in potions class, um, and he gets like threatened for expulsion or whatever, uh, <laughs> you know, just things he glossed over. You do. Um, the uh, he they see the advert for Lockhart's Dueling Club, uh, so they uh, so they go there. This is where Harry learns his Expelliarmus, which gets used in I'm pretty sure every book at least at least a couple times uh, from here on out. Um, uh, the, the two boys are sort of like brought up and start fighting, uh, or dueling rather in front of him. Um, end of dueling club, um, of course is where Harry finds, um, the little Hufflepuff boy petrified and McGonagall just drags him straight to Dumbledore. And that leads of course into Polyjuice Potion, um, which is where we learn that Dumbledore's like, hey, I understand that you didn't do it, but it's just getting oddly too convenient. And so over the Christmas break, after Hermione has been brewing Polyjuice Potion, um, they steal some hair from Crab and Goyle, and Harry and Ron sneak into the Slytherin common room uh, to question Malfoy, who they realize for once is innocent. I say for once as if he hasn't been innocent every time they thought he's done something. Yeah. But they're always like, ah, oh, and Hermione turns into a cat. Um, yeah. And she has to go to the infirmary in the next, uh, she has to go to the infirmary to deal with that. Yeah, um, to be cat. So which leads oh. to the very secret diary, uh, which is, um, they, they were just, they were looking around and they step, they, they, I think they, it's that they hear wailing from the bathroom. They step yeah. in and meet Moaning Myrtle. Talk to her for a bit. Uh, they take the uh, they take the just the diary that's sitting there, uh, marked with uh, marked with Riddle's name on it, Tom Riddle's. Um, and then he starts. Uh, Harry starts conversing with it, um, and writing within it, and uh, finding out who it belongs to, and uh, learning about some stuff uh, within. Uh, he also uh, uh, he he finds out that. Uh, there was a bit of a uh, riddle was an old student at Hogwarts who then uh, who had a bit of a run in with Hagrid and led to his expulsion. Or, or, I guess it's would you would you call Hagrid an expulsion? Yeah, that's what it was because he got his wand snapped. Yeah, that's what it was. And yeah, off to Cornelius Court. Gosh darn, I can't speak. Cornelius Fudge, um, which is where. Of course, they sneak off to Hagrid's, Hagrid's hut uh, to question him about what they learned, but they don't do that until after Hermione gets got, I think. I think that, yeah, yeah I think that's the case. Make sure. Um, no, not yet. Uh, but we see they run off to Hagrid's, Hagrid's hut and question him. Hermione does get got, and then we see, of course, Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic, uh, drag Hagrid off to Azkaban uh, because they think he's doing it again, even though he didn't do it the first time. 
And then, of course, we see the Board of Governors, led by Lucius Malfoy, um, telling Dumbledore to get out, as you do. Yeah, you know, just, 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 just get him out. Yeah, um, which leads to Aragog. Mm-hmm. So, Aragog is uh, they they they're listening to um, what's it called they they see Hermione's not there and also hear Lockhart talking about um, that Hagrid's just gone. So they go out and sort of start looking in the woods, I believe, to try to sort of clear the name. Uh, Ron hates spiders, so this entire this entire chapter is a lot of him whining. Um, they 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 meet Aragog, the big spider that was uh, freed before. Um, however, uh, they they find out soon that that wasn't true, and that Hagrid got him as an egg uh, instead of just being released from the chamber. Uh, so and they also they sort of clear Hagrid's name for themselves and find out that there was no way that this was actually the monster that came out. Um, but then they're also uh, then the spider's like, okay, cool. Uh, they, uh, there's your information. Now I'm going to kill you. So they uh, they flee away uh, and exit the Forbidden Forest and then come up with the I think sorry I, I missed a bit they they find out that the body was of the kid that was killed also was found in the bathroom so they link that back to oh shoot I think that that's Myrtle like the the Myrtle was the person that was killed yeah and of course that leads to the cha- chapter called the Chamber of Secrets. Um, which we see starts off with like a very, very stressed out Jenny. Nobody knows why. Um, so a little bit later, of course, the boys um, go visit a petrified Hermione and they find, of course, a book, uh, a page from a book. So telling us that, of course, they, uh, Hermione has known the answers uh, for a while now. Um, and so they run off to tell McGonagall what they've witnessed or what they know now. And McGonagall is in the middle of a teacher's meeting um, where they just agree to send Lockhart off to the Chamber of Secrets. Um, so then Ron and, and Harry decide, oh no, we're going to drag Lockhart with us. Time to go to the Chamber of Secrets, um, leading to the heir of Slytherin. So this one is, they all, um, uh, they, they go to the Chamber of Secrets. Harry unlocks it uh, via his, his parcel tongue. Um, and then he, uh, he, he goes down with the three of, uh, with the two others in tow, uh, Lockhart's dumb and curses himself, uh, leading, uh, Ron to have to deal with that. And Harry moves on down into the, the depths of the cavern. Uh, he sees Ginny sort of, uh, just lay, laying there, uh, next to like ghostly Tom Riddle. Uh, who then, in no uncertain terms, uh, <laughs> reminds him, hey, I'm Voldemort as, as a kid. This is me. We're very similar. Uh, and now goodbye. Uh, but then Harry calls out for Dumbledore and the sorting hat uh, show up. And uh, the phoenix and his sorting hat show up. The phoenix gouges out the basilisk's, uh, basilisk's eyes. Uh, and then Harry gets the sword of Gryffindor from uh, within the hat and then Kill, uh, kills the beast, uses a fang to stab the diary, uh, and waking up, uh, waking up Ginny and destroying the first Horcrux. And of course, then saves, pulls Ron, and a very dissociate, dissociated Lockhart from the cavern, and they run off to find the in Dom, in Dobby's reward that Miss Weasley and Mister Weasley are both at Hogwarts, 
Um, McGonagall is there, and so is Dumbledore, who has returned. Um, Harry goes through, explains all of the things that happened. Uh, they kind of discovered that Ginny was, in fact, like, possessed by the diary. Um, which leads to Lucius Malfoy storming in for some reason. Uh, Dobby in tow is very upset the fact that Dumbledore is back. Dumbledore then says, ah, well, uh, you threatened a bunch of people to get me out of here. Get wrecked. Um, and then Harry lets Dobby free um, with a gross sock. And then, yep, and then back to the muggle world, it is for Harry. Yay. <laughs> okay. And that's it, Chamber of Secrets. Um, I would like to note that most of the, most of the novel happens in the last three chapters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everything's sort of talked about and solved and dealt with there. And it is, uh, a lot. It, yeah, this can, this can be our little, we get a real quick gripe session about what happens here. Um, I think. I, there is one thing, um, a little like small detail, um, kind of going back to what we had said last week, talking about how like the Dursleys are just gross. Um, they're the worst. They abuse Harry. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that's too unfair to say. Right. But there's a scene um, at the very end of chapter one where it's like um, Aunt Petunia knew he really hadn't done magic, but he still had to dunk duck as she aimed a heavy blow at his head with a soapy frying pan. Uh, remind you, this kid's 12. That would hurt him bad. Uh, a nice metal frying pan upside the head. And then somewhere later in the book, he kind of references of like, it felt like he'd been hit upside the head with a frying pan. I was like, oh, poor boy knows exactly what that feels like. Oh my God. Um, it's also real, real quick dig on her. Uh, if, if the movie is to be believed, that's a cast iron, not just like a regular like metal thing. That would like incapacitate Harry. And that also, why she uses soap? <laughs> like you mean to tell me twelve-year-old Harry is gonna be all right with after this? No. No, 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 no. Harry is Harry is going to be concussed. Also, he's already small. Like Harry, multiple times throughout the series, is described as a very small boy for his age, especially in the mm -hmm. first half of the series. Because he, he's lived in a he's lived in a cupboard. <laughs> because he's starved <laughs> so here's like poor little small bony harry getting schmacked with a frying pan and like we're supposed to just pretend kids gonna make it out like what um but yeah that was just a fun little little piece i noticed um so of course we talked a little bit um throughout the review about how much foreshadowing there really is in this book um for us to sit down and talk about every piece of foreshadowing um, for both like things that happen later in the in the book and for things that happen later in the series, we would be here for days. Yes. Um, so much of this book is just setting up future books and mm -hmm. future novels or future parts of the novel. Um, and we were we were talking about this off off recording about the fact that like it kind of ruins it like to go back and do a reread. Because J.K. Rowling makes the foreshadowing blatantly obvious. Yeah, she wants it's she wants her readers to pick up on it, but in sacrifice for that, she has it more blunt. And similar, it's similar to how uh, how we talked about her writing style last time. She doesn't want something to be missed. She wants people to pick up on it. And since this book was written for kids, she wanted people to mo most likely, I assume, she wanted people to be like, oh, I wonder if that's going to be important later. However, like you said. 
on a reread, it makes it, I don't want to say painful, but it makes it kind of slow. It's like, oh, Harry can, Harry, uh, Harry and Tom Riddle are similar. That's, huh? It's like, it's like, why? I wonder why that, go, huh? It's the calm. When we see, I think the only genuine surprise that comes in this novel, much like the last one, is who the villain is. Mm-hmm. Um, because, of course, we, I mean, we learn that Tom Riddle has a big role to play in this, but we learn that it's Jenny Weasley doing all of the, you know, she summons the basilisk, she's the one writing all the stuff on the walls, which is, a t- I mean, that's completely out of left field. Um, but I think, unlike my complaint from last week about how the Quirrell plot line was too twisty, I think with the, with the foreshadowing in this novel, having Ginny be the technical villain of the piece come in worked well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I think it works. I think it works a lot better, especially because there was, in the first book, Quirrell, it was set up to, to make you think that there was no reason it could be Quirrell until the very end. In this, it talks about how Ginny is in odd form basically as soon as she gets to Hogwarts. And once again, it is another, it's, it's a very similar setup. It is somebody who is, who is most likely on their own pretty innocent uh, and wouldn't do these sort of things being manipulated by Voldemort. Although this is an, obviously a different form of him, but I, I think that, I don't know. Go ahead. Well, I think I think the big difference is too is that Ginny is not aware that she is doing Voldemort's dirty work, whereas Quirrell is very like conscious about it. He's like, "Yes, I knew exactly what I was doing. I deceived you, ha ha." Whereas like Ginny's like, "I when I realized I was doing it, I tried to get you know I tried to escape from it, but I still never realized it was me until now." And it's just so, like, heartbreaking. Because here is 11-year-old Jenny. You know, the first time she's been away from her family. The first time she's been out from under direct control of all of her brothers. Just broken. And it's just so sad. That is another thing I kind of want to touch on, though, with with Jenny and the Weasley interaction. How protective the Weasleys are. Of, yeah. Of both. Anyone and everyone. Yeah, like if anyone they love, they are like super protective of. Of course, we see the knockout drag out in Flourishing Bots uh, between Mr. Weasley and Lucius Mouthmoy. Uh, he doesn't even blink. He goes like starts punching him. Mm-hmm. And then of course we see we see Ron when when Malf when Draco Malfoy insults Hermione. We see Ron try to curse him, and then we see Ron just physically fight him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we see, of course, the Weasley twins, you know, gang up on, on Jenny's behalf at any point they deem fit. Um, but the most heartbreaking thing of, like, the true, like, closeness of the Weasley family is there at the end when, um, when it's revealed that Jenny is the student in the chamber before they realize that Jenny is the one who kind of did it. Um, when Ginny's just alone in the in in the Chamber of Secrets and they presume her dead, it's the, it, they say it's the first time the Gryffindor common room has ever been this full but this quiet, and the Weasley twins just go to bed. Mm-hmm. And like it's just, no, no funny business, just no. It just hurts me so much for them. I just 
they get they get a rough they get a rough go of it in this series because they're like, and I, I have I have my like I have my my points on both the twins as characters that I don't think I'll bring up quite yet in the series, but I, I later on I have I have words I have words. Um, let's see. Is there anything else we want to touch on before we move uh, closer into themes? Nah, I think I think let's just we'll hop right into identity. I think is the biggest thing we want to run with right now. Um, right. And there's different types of identity to talk about here. So first, we can kind of talk about it. Kind of flows into our last point. Um, talking about the identity, identity in respect to Tom Riddle and Harry Potter. Um, these are two characters that J.K. Rowling makes blatantly obvious are so similar. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, she straight up has during Tom Riddle's villain splaining him just lay it out that him and Harry are the same. They are half-bloods. They, you know, they were raised by muggles. They are orphans and they look alike. But I think we see that in earlier in the book when Harry chooses to lie to Dumbledore. When Harry, when Dumbledore's like, is there anything you need to tell me? And Harry says no. On a reread, you can see the fact that Dumbledore is like, you can almost see the fact that Dumbledore is having flashbacks of Tom Riddle in his mind. Mm-hmm. There's the... You know, Harry, who really doesn't have anything to hide, but he's so afraid that he's going to get in trouble that he just tells Dumbledore, no, there's nothing. And, and of course, there's the quote that, you know, choices play a really big role in this book. And I think that's where the difference in identity between Tom Riddle and Harry Potter comes down to is the choices they make. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there is... There, there's something to be said about they are very similar, but their upbringings were quite different. Uh, for instance, there's the reason that Harry is like hesitant to say, like, to like not want to feel the backlash. I mean, just look at how he is raised. Uh, like you said earlier, uh, he was making a making a bit of a fuss before the dinner party, and a frying pan was swung at his head. So, like, I judging by this very powerful magical headmaster, he kind of fears the consequences of like telling him like like actually telling him and opening up to him about these things mm-hmm. um and it it sort of goes to show uh sort of the the nurture uh, like nature and nurture sort of uh argument that is used with the dursleys here yeah i didn't even think about that but yeah i was thinking more of the lines that like harry has every right to hate muggles but he doesn't mm-hmm. he makes the choice to not judge every muggle by the example the Dursleys have set. Whereas Voldemort despises muggles because of his father, because of the orphanage he was raised in. Mm -hmm. And of course that anger festers into his development into the dark arts, which we see of course later in, I mean, in later books in the series. And I think that just kind of reinforces the point of how important choices in life are made. Um, but of course, we have another character we can obviously compare Harry to in this novel specifically, and that is Gilderoy Lockhart. Hey, everyone's favorite character, Gilderoy. How are you doing? Oh my gosh, I can't. I think that's also a reason I really don't like Chamber of Secrets. Is I really hate Lockhart's character. <laughs> and, <laughs> like, I, I can. I only hate this character so much. Uh, he might be up there with like Dolores Umbridge and my least favorite characters ever. Yeah, um, <laughs> he's not great. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not even like always like his actions that make you feel that way. It's just like I just don't like I don't like him. I don't like the idea of him. Like it, mm, he just rubs me the wrong way in every possible regard. Bad. He's just bad. bad. He's just bad. And it's um, like like a like a not like a Voldemort bad or even a, like a Umbridge bad. She, he's just gross bad. Yeah, he's just. He's gross he's and he's very, just glory stealing and it's like I don't know, it's He's like very manipulative, but not obviously. Like of course you have a character like Tom Riddle who openly says, like, yes, I am manipulative. I know exactly how to read people. No. Gilderoy Lockhart was that jock from high school who was bad at everything he did. He just happened to be pretty, so everybody did what they want what he wanted them to do. Yep, that's that just about hits the nail on the head for for him. <laughs> and I he, think my like, I think my my time as the resident weirdo of my high school kind of sets that in my mind of how much I just despise Lockhart. <laughs> like, oh my yeah. god. I mean that's that's, I mean that's basically it too. Like there's not much on, but like beyond that for him. I mean yeah. it's he he leverages he leverages his fame that he has. Uh, like all, almost completely undeserved, by the way, um, to sort of get what he wants. He uses it as a tool more than anything, instead of just as a badge. He uses it as like a VIP access card. When uh, compared to ha- the way that Harry uses his fame, of like you didn't know he had it, um, and it just thrust upon him one day, similar to how Lockhart did it. He wasn't Lockhart wasn't like searching that out actively. I don't believe he was. He just he was like, oh, uh, people think I did this? Yeah, sure. I'll, and just rode with it. Whereas yeah. Harry just completely had his deserved fame, found it, and is still humbled by it. He is not using it to for his gain. There's very few times he is, he's used it like that. And I think comparing those two is, is um, I, I think, I think they, they parallel a, a little bit, but it's, it shows sort of the, the corruption that if Harry was more possibly like Tom Riddle, it would it would go to serve in his downfall. I think this is another place we can mention the like dilemma of choice. You have Lockhart who, you know, instead of correcting somebody when they were like, oh, you did this? That first time, you know, he went, oh, no, 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 this is my personality now. Mm-hmm. And Lockhart actively seeks out fame and he actively abuses his fame. Whereas we have Harry who is almost ashamed of his fame at points, like especially... I think we talked about a little bit like this uh, last week as well. Harry is never super confident in his being the boy who lived identity. He is just Harry Potter. He is Harry who grew up under the stairs. He is Harry, friends of Ron and Hermione. He, you know, there are so many other things other than his fame that define him. You know, you have, yeah, and I think that's where the whole thing with Lockhart comes in. And of course we have Colin who pop, who like, it's kind of like the paparazzi to Harry. You know, he is always there with his camera, always ready to take pictures. Um, whereas Lockhart, Lockhart embraces it. Harry's actively like, just leave me alone. I don't care mm-hmm. what you do. Just don't be here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is, it is like an oh, almost, it is almost an upfront and blatant sort of rejection of how Lockhart uh, behaves in the novel. Yeah. Which is, uh, which I think leads us into our next theme, if you want to touch on that. 
Um, I'm trying to think which direction to go. I think we can go with framing from here. So of course uh, that's that's what I was sort of leaning towards okay. with the whole prop <laughs> So I guess I probably I should have made that more clear. Vague. <laughs> Um, which next is, like I said, let's, we can hop on over to framing. And we've, we see Lockhart do a little bit of the framing um, as well, because as the moment Hagrid is, is taken to Azkaban, Lockhart jumps on to that train 110%. Mm-hmm. I, I knew Hagrid did it from the beginning. Shows him, like, sir, you had no clue. Please don't do this. And mm-hmm. You just have Harry and Ron both getting, like, angry with it but you have like i said you just lockhart is just trying to frame hagrid for all of it because in his mind as soon as they can frame hagrid and get this whole people almost dying out of the way he can still be the center of attention and that's that's something that uh, i when i was reading that i i i liked it sort of showed um so ron's always very quick to defend uh people that he loves we talked about that before uh, and he's getting angry when Hagrid's getting accused about this in uh, in Lockhart's class. And you can also see that that's ru- that personality of Ron is rubbing off onto Harry uh, mm-hmm. as he is getting almost equally as mad um, at this person for accusing Harry. And you see that late- happen later more on where Harry gets all- just as defensive about his friends as Ron does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I-, I think that's – I think that point is – Unless, unless I'm mistaken, that is like one of the first times where he's getting overly, overly defensive like that, where he's getting like fuming in his seat. Well, and I, I agree. And I think that goes into the theme we talked about last week of that rebellion too. Um, we see Ron have that effect on Harry. Um, Harry finally has a family to stand up for. Mm-hmm. He would have never defended the Dursleys. He hates the Dursleys. However, he doesn't think twice to defend Hermione or Ron or the Weasleys as a whole. Um, and especially Hagrid, the man who's responsible for bringing him into the wizarding world. Harry doesn't think twice to just get mad. However, the biggest difference between Harry and Ron is Harry realizes that the way to manipulate Lockhart is to play into what he's saying. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we see Ron. There's a couple points where Harry does get angry at Lockhart for being gross to, to Hagrid. Um, but a little bit later, we see, of course, towards the end, um, Ron is just mad because Lockhart won't stop. And Harry's like, oh yeah, Professor Lockhart, you're right. And you know what? With him gone, why don't you go ahead and leave us to keep walking? Of course, trying to find his and Ron's out. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's the biggest difference is Ron is not willing to think past his anger. Whereas yeah. Harry can, at least in this part of the book, um, and we kind of see them do do the end verse later in the series, which we can talk about when we get to, I think, probably, that's probably in Half-Blood Prince where we see the big switch in that. But, um, but of course, we see framing throughout the series, uh, or throughout the book. Specifically, it starts off with the Hufflepuffs uh, framing Harry as the, the heir of Slytherin. Um, we see them, he stumbles in on them talking about how they think Harry is the heir and they have all their evidence. They are prepared to take him down and they're persuading other kids their year to think that, you know, we see them talking to, I believe it's Hannah Abbott where they're like, well, you see, of course, Harry's uh, the heir of Slytherin. He's a parcel mouth. Then how stupid of you to not believe that. 
And I think it shows that, you know, and then we see, of course, Harry getting upset about it because we know that he's not the heir. Um, and in turn, we see Harry and Ron and Hermione framing Draco, as you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like there's a constant throughout these books that one of two characters will always be framed as the main villain, no matter which way you slice it. Which <laughs> It's either Draco or it's Snape, and it's usually wrong. Yeah. Uh, yet again, that doesn't get... But I was going to say, except for half of the prince, uh, prince where it's both, and only one of them is right. Right. But, like, I feel like in this book, it's, like, so much of, like, ah, we knew Malfoy was doing it. Of course. He's the grossest of the Slytherins. Of course he's the heir of Slytherin. And the moment they investigate him, he's like, I wish I was. You're like, oh, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what's worse, actually being it or hoping you would be it. Yeah. Because, like, (laughs) that just opens up a whole other can of worms of the whole, like, Draco being like, man, I idolize the heir of Slytherin. I wish I knew who he was. He keeps killing all these, you know, he's almost killing them. He should just go ahead and finish the job. And you're like, this is a 12-year-old talking about his fellow classmates. Like, Draco needed a therapist. Yeah. Now, I will say there's something in that scene um, that I read, and I wasn't sure, so I wanted, to, I wanted to hit you with this. Yeah. It felt over the top. Like, we know Draco, and we know his whole sort of style like with the with the benefit of um hindsight he's still a jerk he's still uh, oppressed however uh he uh, some of it is a bit of a facade that he has to keep up and in that scene that anger that he was like or not that that excitement he was like oh boy i wish they should should kill them all it felt like forced as if he was trying to keep up appearances with crabby and goyle um and i thought that that maybe that was him like he didn't. He didn't really want like all of his classmates to die. That feels extreme, even for him. I think he was just trying to keep up his sort of appearance of being, uh, like one of the one of the meanest and most Slytherin Slytherins that has been in the house. Do you think it was? Do you think it was Draco? You know, like doing that because that's how he always interacts with Crab or Goyle, a Crab and Goyle, or do you think that's that he had some sort of like maybe this isn't them i um, i think you could probably make a case for either but i was leaning more into that was always how he interacted with crabby and goyle or crab and goyle yeah um just because it it, i mean there there are like when you think about like because uh, draco is obviously sort of a, a parallel for like bullies in like school when you think about a bully in school a lot of times friends only hang out with them because not because they are friends, but they like either like like the idea of hanging out with that person or want them for like the status. Yeah. And Draco, referring to his his quote unquote friends as their last names instead of like you know like their actual names, uh, shows that he really just cares about status. Uh, we talked about that before. So like I think that he is trying to keep up the appearance uh, with Krabby and Goyle of him being the biggest, the baddest. And like, oh, I don't care what happens to any of these people. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know what, that kind of makes sense, too, because we do see, of course, that Draco's a very secretive character mm-hmm. about his home life. He is not secretive about the things that he is prideful in, of course, like his dad's status and, like, his family's name and the money they make, you know? Yeah. But he is very secretive. Like, we don't know anything about Draco, 
We know so much about the Malfoy family. We know nothing about Draco. Mm-hmm. We know, like, at this point, we, nothing. We got, we got very little on him. And maybe that's it. Maybe, I mean, it makes sense that that's how he interacts with his friends. <laughs> Air quote around the word friends. Yeah. No, it also, it, it also could just be him being a jerk. But I, I, I like to believe, especially with things that happen later, that this is him just trying to keep things up. And he doesn't actually want everyone to die that is not him. Yeah. Yeah, I th- yeah, it's probably a little bit. Because like I said, I do like, I like Draco's character. I like Draco's character a hell of a lot more than I like Gilderoy Lockhart. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that's, that's fair. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I just... I think you're I think you're onto something there. I think genuinely. I think that Draco is just a prat. Um Yeah, he's he's, he's, he's a everybody. jerk. He's not genocidal. Yeah, I don't I don't think he's that kind. Because I mean the spoilers for later in the series, he's not. You know, yeah. when you get into to Half Blood Prince and Deathly Hollows, we, we learn A, we learn a lot more about Draco and his family, but we also see a lot more of him being afraid of so much like here it just sounds like he's a cocky 12 year old before he learned what the world really meant Mm -hmm. so but um i think we can go ahead and we'll go ahead and move on to um kind of this discussion on warmth and specifically we see it a lot walk it, it like and i think this is this is also part of the place where the movies have affected our perception a lot um, because when I think of the Dursleys, I think of the, like, the very modern, like, stainless steel, shade, like, hues of blue format, you know what I mean? Like, pristine. Yeah. Whereas when I think of the Weasleys, I think of these, like, you know, different shades of oranges and reds, uh, you know, deep earthy colors, and everything is chaotic, but, like, the homey kind of chaotic. And... We see that almost immediately walking through, like, walking into, like, between the worlds of the Dursleys and of, you know, of Privet Drive and of the Burrow. Right there in those first couple of chapters, you know, we see Harry kind of immediately talk about how he is just in awe with how the Burrow looks and its disorganization and this, like, warmth he gets and this hot meal that you know, Mrs. Weasley is definitely eating him, making him eat way too much of. And I think that's, in my mind, that's where the, the sign of warmth is so strong in this book is between the two. Um, and I think we see it again at the end as well. Um, so we kind of see it where, of course, we come from the Chamber of Secrets, which is dark and, and gross and wet. And I am just imagining a cave and I'm claustrophobic, and I don't like this. (laughs) Um, It makes me violently uncomfortable to think of the Chamber of Secrets as a whole, Um, but we are immediately then traded into McGonagall's office, where a fire is going, and a family is reunited, and Dumbledore talking about hot chocolate, and and food, and, you know. So, yeah, I, I was just curious if you noticed kind of that, like, that homey sense anywhere else. Um, yeah, I mean, we can, I mean, we, we, it's, it's definitely a very present thing. It was very present in the last one too. I think, mm-hmm. uh, and this is one, like, kind of like you said, it's hard for me to think about this book since I've seen all the movies like a couple times each. 
I, I when I p- picture a scene, a lot of times I picture it how it like looks in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right right away, like uh, in the first book, at the very least, he he crosses the threshold of nine and three quarters, and it goes from the sort of drab station, just a, a lot of a lot of beige and gray and black trains, to like everything is vibrant. The the train is like the train is not just black, but like red and black, and there is just colorful clothing and people all around. Um, and I think that that uh, like, continues into this book. I think the only other time that I can think of specifically that it is used is when uh, is near the very end, like as he uh, as he is like facing off and everything seems hopeless. It, the things are described as sort of dark, uh, dark and dreary. But then the uh, the bright red phoenix swooshes in uh, and like car uh, like gouges out the eyes. And then the the gleaming silver sword with the red gem in it comes up and everything is very, it's not like it's colorful. However, there are very prominent and strong colors used in the fight against the basilisk. Like I'd have to, I'd have to like try to find it later, but I believe that when in that battle, the uh, basilisk colors are like described pretty in depth for the first time there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it talks about the, like the, the black ichor oozing out of the book as he stabs it with the basilisk fang. Um, and so every there is a there is a focus on colors and the warmth sort of of the phoenix um, in that scene, and I think that's important. It's it's less of a parallel, but I do think that the it goes from the sort of darker tones to a much not not like thematically, but like color wise lighter tone later in that fight. I definitely agree. I never really thought about that one. I never thought about the. Fox kind of bringing in the, of course we see the warmth and the fact that the first time we meet Fox, he explodes. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's just like, Boo. bro, straight up catches on fire the first time Harry interacts with him, and Dumbledore's, oh, it's okay, just give him a second. That was that is my favorite. That's one of my favorite Harry Potter scenes. Like I, this isn't my favorite book, but I love, I just love it. E- even in the movies, it's just like you're sitting there and just bird explodes next to him. It's it. It gets a chuckle out of me every time. Also, Harry's so sweetly going, I didn't do it. I don't know what the bird just <laughs> did, but it wasn't my fault. Once again, he was blamed for things at his house. Even when they weren't. Like, that, that's, that's something that, thank you for reminding me. I just thought of, about this. A lot of this book, when Dobby is messing with him, is him getting blamed for things that are not his fault. And then a bird just explodes next to him with him knowing that there's someone out there just trying to screw with them. His immediate defense is like, no, 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 that's not me. I swear, I didn't kill your bird. I didn't make him spontaneously combust, I swear. I wish I knew how. I have no clue what he did. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's, I love Fox though. He's, Fox, the best character. <laughs> Superior to all Fox the Phoenix. Um, <laughs> so I think, We'll go ahead and move on to our, I think one of our last points is names. Um, so names are a big part of the series, of course, um, with the fact that nobody says Lord Voldemort. Um, but it comes up a lot in this book specifically, um, starting off with the Dursleys never say Harry's name. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is always you, it is boy, it is some sort of derogatory term, but it is never the Harry or Potter. Um, it is always just, you know, they never name him. And I think that is so, yet again, shows how, like, awful the Dursleys are. But I think it also alienates Harry from, from the muggle world even more. Really, just for, for a while in that, in that first set of chapters, it is just 
from the world in general. He is completely locked off, meant like physically, mentally, uh, literally. It's just he is trapped in in a room uh, with caged windows, um, and with like nothing else he can do. He is uh, completely isolated from everyone and everything around him. And for and from both worlds because of with Dobby messing with him, of course. Um, we see him completely isolated. And, um, but I don't know, just the Dursley's not ever saying Harry's name just shows how stupidly fearful they are of him. Um, and then, of course, we go to the name of Tom Riddle. This is the book, of course, that we learn that Tom Riddle is an anagram. It is also the name of Voldemort's mobile father. It is also the name of Voldemort. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, we learn, of course, from Dumbledore at the, that last chapter, he's very, like, Dumbledore is also one of the only other characters we ever see say, say Lord Voldemort. Um, but Dumbledore is very, like, he's very straight up. He's like, you know, very few people know that his name was Tom Riddle. Um, however, I taught him. Uh, we should talk about the fact that his name was Tom Riddle and that, you know, there's power in the, in his name. Mm-hmm. And we kind of see Voldemort disguising himself under this name. And, and there is, oh God, sorry. No, go for it. Um, there is a lot of, in, in mythology, um, just in general, there's a lot of focus on names. Like there, there, in most cultures and like mythos, there is an importance to the name uh and there's been there's been a lot of different forms of briefly uh like basilisks in different uh mythos as well um but usually whenever they brought up one of the original ways to defeat uh, a basilisk and i think it's i believe it's greek that i'm thinking of here i'm a little rusty but it was to find out its name and when you use that it is uh it is no longer able to use its like powers to uh to petrify and kill um and i think that with Tom, uh, Tom Riddle hiding behind, or Voldemort hiding behind, like his name, Tom Marfalo Riddle, it sort of uh, uh, echoes that of how you used to be able to defeat the Basilisk. Hmm. I never thought about it like that, but I, I definitely see that. And like, because we do see, we see Riddle kind of, I don't know. That's how he lures in both Harry and Jenny into writing in the book. He never says who he is. He always just says, oh, hi, I am Tom Riddle. Hi, my name is Tom. You know, kind of pulling them in with the, like, the, the humanity behind Voldemort. And it's also, I think, that they are, they're both sort of lured in uh, also from the fact that Jenny is, Jenny is like, this is her first year. She is very new to the magic world, despite like being raised in it she does want to experience a lot of these things and she is sort of gullible in that sense that she sees like this magical thing that she doesn't understand and she's like oh yeah here i'll talk to it and it has like an ounce of humanity that she can understand harry similarly is still fresh and new to this magical world and he's just like magic diary is that a normal thing and they're like uh it's like oh it's talking to me cool i'll sit down and have a chat they're both enchanted and entranced by what they don't know and I, I think that's a, a decent parallel between the two of them. And I think it's for two different reasons. I think Jenny's, Jenny's pull to the diary is very much her need to feel like part of a community. 
Mm-hmm. He's so desperate to be connected to literally anyone. You know, she feels very alienated from her brothers being the, the youngest and the only girl. And of course the boy and her brothers tease her because they're brothers. But she feels very isolated from them. And she's just so hopeful that this diary will be her friend, which is so sad. But at the same time, we see Harry is genuinely curious. Um, And I think that's the biggest difference between the two. Harry never lets himself get too deep into it. He never, like, wholeheartedly confines into the diary. However, he is still that, he's a similar level of gullible as Jenny is in this first book, or in this book specifically, if, like, he, like, Tom Riddle's like, ah, would you like to dive into a memory with me? And Harry's <laughs> like, I don't know, yeah, sure. I guess. Yeah, sure. Experience. Good. Like, <laughs> whereas, like, Jenny's is less of a, of a choice, I think. I think, she, yes, she makes the original choice to write in the diary, but hers is out of desperation to feel like she has friends. We don't see anybody, we don't know, at this point, we don't know anybody else in Jenny's year. And we never meet another Gryffindor in Jenny's year with the exception of Colin Creevy, who they are, they never interact. They're never in the same scene together. And it's just so, like, you just have to think of how alone Jenny is while not being alone because she has six brothers, four of which are in the same house, in the same, you know, school as her. So, but yeah, I think it kind of, I think that's where a lot of that plays in. Yeah, I, I can, I, 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 I've, I like wholeheartedly agree with that take. I, I really like that view on it. I genuinely, I'm trying to think, I genuinely think we have died. Originally we talked about diving into, you know, Jenny Lockhart and Hagrid, and I think we've already kind of done it. Mm-hmm. I think the only one that we really need to touch on, like our character for the end of the episode to kind of talk about, I think should just be Hagrid. Yeah, that works with me. Because we've really hit, we've really hit, originally we hit, like I said, we had Jenny Lockhart and Hagrid. We really just, we just hit Jenny. We already, yeah, we already, we just hit Jenny. We dived, I think, as far as the well goes with Lockhart already. We've hit the bricks with Lockhart. Um, mm-hmm. man stu- and I don't want to go further. Um, <laughs> so I think with Hagrid, we learn a lot about Hagrid um, in this, in this chat, in this book. We, we see a moment of doubt but then Harry's immediate, no, 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 no. Hagrid would never. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we learn why Hagrid was expelled from Hogwarts and why he got his, his wand snapped. And it's all this Tom Riddle trying to frame Hagrid. And it's so heartbreaking because here's Hagrid, this just too good for his own, like, own good kind of character. And the idea of him sitting in Azkaban, even for like the couple weeks that he's in Azkaban, just breaks my heart. Because he's just, you know, he's just a, a cuddly dude who just wants the best for everybody, specifically creatures. He just wants every miscellaneous creature to be happy and alive. Yeah, it's, and it's his downfall. Yeah, Hagrid's Hagrid is a, a character that throughout the series, he, he I will say he is very he he's very static. I don't think there there's too much like 
development on that arc, but I don't think it's necessarily bad for him. I he's like you said, he is very cuddly. He is very warm and friendly character. If we want to quickly jump back into the warmth thing, um, they do like they sort of deal with uh, Draco and like that whole uh, angry sort of ordeal, and then like have to like like mad the uh, runners throwing up slugs, and then instantly jump back to. Uh, Hagrid's cottage, which is like nice, warm, and they sort of like help him deal with that and let them calm down a little bit. Like he is, throughout the series, just a beacon of hope for the trio and really most people. And he's not just a caretaker of Hogwarts; he's a caretaker of the students as well, specifically those he's close to. Like you see, we see him many times in this book and in the previous book, and we'll see it later in the series. The trio confines in Hagrid. Even the when they probably shouldn't. Cares for Hagrid as much as he does for them. And we see Hagrid doing the same for Ginny. He says, like, oh my gosh, I just met Ginny. She's the sweetest. And it's just so... I just... I wish the best for Hagrid, and I know that, like, the Wizarding World just kind of wants to see his light kind of stamped out, which is so sad. Um, but you have Dumbledore, who's always there for Haggard as well. So, yeah. Um, there was one other thing. Okay. That I I wanted to touch on, because um, mm-hmm. I I couldn't think of a better place to put it. But it's one of my favorite and least favorite lines in the series. When uh when Tom Riddle is talking about um <laughs> when Tom Riddle is talking about how much Haggard just cared about the creatures and stuff like that, and he was saying that he was endangering people, he says that. Uh, and I quote, it's in chapter 16, uh, it's trying to raise werewolf cubs under his bed, seeking off to the forbidden forest to wrestle trolls. Um, he was keeping werewolf cubs under his bed. That would be a human child. Right? And I think this, okay, I think that highly falls on J.K. Rowling's continuity problem. It definitely is. However, (laughs) also, both of those references serve as as foreshadowing. (laughs) Distantly, but and, yeah, no, those yeah. are babies. Those are people. <laughs> I yeah. Here's here's the way that I like to think of it because I'm pretty sure it was just J.K. pulling pulling a monster and not really thinking about it. Um, but, but her and her werewolves are a little bit different. They like are completely different humans for a sh- short time. Uh, so maybe he only kept them in there for like one night. I don't really know. But the way that I like, tend to think about it is that maybe they were abandoned because they were found out to have like sort of werewolves and he was letting them like, like, like sort of like get some food from him uh, from maybe the dining halls or something. He was taking care of them rather than keeping them like in a box. Yeah. Like these like babies in a box. Yeah. It, it definitely, it definitely, it definitely was just unintentional. Like oopsies didn't mean to write that, but like, I also think it could be Tom Riddle just trying to think of the most terrifying thing he can. Yeah, like, um, because Harry it's, doesn't know anything. He knows he can just lie. Yeah, and I think that's probably, that might be part of it, is Tom Riddle being like, oh, man, came, kept werewolf cubs under his bed, and little second-year Harry would be like, oh, my gosh. A werewolf oh, cub? That's a, that's a wolf and a were. And of course, I mean, we learned in the next book that that's not how werewolves work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, most likely it's J.K. Rowling. Uh, but we can we can chop it up to to Tom Riddle trying to be intimidating. Yes. 
And another thing to hop back onto identity. I don't know if we mentioned this or not. If we mentioned it, I'll just edit this out and, you know, whatever. But Tom Riddle and Lockhart both rely on their good looks to get what they want. Mm-hmm. Like, Tom Riddle is described as a very pretty man um, before he goes gross. Um, and he uses that to his advantage, which we'll see in the later books. But we have Lockhart, who solely relies on the fact he is pretty to get everything. So, I think... Which... There's a parallel there. Also something um, that I found interesting in there is it is like Tom Riddle was described as like a very dashingly handsome kid. And then also uh, it's just sprinkled in there. Uh, It's like, yeah, you look just like me, Harry. You're like the spitting image of me. And then like before it sort of implied that Harry was like an average looking kid um, with like glasses and like shaggy hair. But now it kind of just (laughs) implies that like Harry is like a very attractive kid who just doesn't clean himself at all. Which is very, very possible because of course, well, I mean, this is something we can, this is a little off topic and we can dive into this when we talk. I think Order of the Phoenix is where we really get to dive into like Harry's family. Mm -hmm. But of course we know later in the series, James Potter, who Harry is said to look identical to, uh, is also a very pretty, very charming guy who does use his, you know, his good looks to get what gets what he wants kind of attitude. Um, especially with Lily, um, you know, or the, not really with Lily, but the fact that he, that Lily's the only one his charms don't work on. Mm-hmm. And that kind of helps develop his whole, like, I'm in love with Lily Evans, you know, who, I mean, eventually that works out in the end because <laughs> we're reading Harry Potter. <laughs> And this week's episode of Genealogy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. So I think we should go ahead and wrap up with our MVP and not MVP. All right. I've, I've been thinking on mine uh, this entire thing. As soon as I finished the book, I was like, I don't know. I got to think about an MVP. Do you want to start or should I? I, I was going to leave it up to you. I think I started last time. Okay. All right. So my MVP starting out with uh, probably the least controversial pick at the very least compared to last time is Hagrid. Good choice. Um, because Hagrid is, once again, he is uh, not not the center of the plot, but he is very involved in the plot, and even when he is uh, like, this is a very soft and gentle man who only cares about the well-being of creatures and himself, uh, who has been faced with <laughs> basically constant strife ever since he was uh, in Hogwarts goes to jail and has to deal with being in as as described one of the worst prisons in the in the wizarding world and then just like is carted back and given the oops sorry about that but here don't worry we'll let you uh we'll let you teach uh in in a semester or two don't worry about that he goes through so much and he is he does not even falter in his smile like once he is like cleared of things and i think just because of that just because of this determination to making sure everyone is okay and cared for and taken care of goes to give him the MVP in my book. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, do you want to do your not MVP or do you want me to do my MVP next? Uh, let me see. You can do your MVP. Okay. So my MVP is McGonagall, uh, mainly because, um, first off, I just love her. Um, she is so like, she's, like I said, she kind of toes the line between Stern and you know she picks and chooses uh, we see her messing around with lockhart 
Uh, she is the one who go who says, hey, Lockhart, how about you go on and venture down to that chamber of secrets that you know so much about? Um, <laughs> and then immediately he's like, now that he's gone, the real adults can talk. Um, she also has always been in Harry's corner, but like the stern parental figure Harry has always needed in his corner, you know? Mm-hmm. Like he kind of, she kind of serves as as this guiding line for Harry that, to show that you need some structure in your life. A little bit of leeway is fine, mm-hmm. but for now, let's kind of keep you on this on the straight and narrow you need to be. <laughs> and I just, I love McGonagall so much. Um, also the fact that she doesn't bat an eye, she steps into the like, the deputy headmistress role, of course, like she, you know, she covers for Dumbledore when he's away. Mm-hmm. Which is does, kind of foreshadowing. A little bit. Um, I, yet again, I just love McGonagall. She's just the best. Yes. <laughs> All right. You got your, your not, your in MVP? Yes. Uh, L, yeah, LVP, least valuable player. Yeah, there we go. LVP. We'll go with that. <laughs> um, okay. So, um, I am going to put my, I'm going to put my vote into, um, sorry, I totally spaced there. I'm putting my vote into Lockhart, which I'm sorry if I've already stolen yours. Um, <laughs> But I'm putting my vote into Lockhart, not only because we, I can drone on about why I don't like the guy. We've touched <laughs> on that. I think that you could replace him with most any character in the book, and it wouldn't be – the plot itself would not change. I, I like him as a foil to Harry. I think he's important in that sense, but I don't think that to the plot, overall, he's important at all. Like if they – if you removed him – I think the I think the book would be shorter, but I think it would have the same arc of plot. Like I don't think he I do not think that he matters really that much. Yeah, I can I can agree with that. Um, yet again on the whole, I, Lockhart's the worst. He is the worst. Um, yeah, I agree with that. My LVP, um, you did take mine. I yeah, sorry. Oh, I have a solid second choice. Um, oh no, never mind. I've thought against it. Um, I'm. You did take mine, and now I'm trying to like think through it. I'm. I have a backup if you want to do. If no, you, you know what? I'm also. I'm just gonna hop on the same train as you. No, my LVP <laughs> is also going to be Lockhart. Yeah, there we go. Go um, for it. But for a different reason. Um, it is arguably the fact that he is one of the most dangerous defense against our dark, dark arts professors Harry has. Mm-hmm. And here's why. He doesn't a. He doesn't teach them anything. B, he puts them in danger. And C, he lying about the fact that he knows how to do these things creates a false sense of confidence that will ultimately lead to the demise of these kids. Mm-hmm. And I also, mean, look at the uh, club. <laughs> I was going to say, and also, he caused uh, young Brett quite a lot of scarring in the movie when he, he gave good old no bones Harry Potter. That <laughs> hurt me. Physically, mentally, everything. I hated that scene. And for that, he will always live in infamy. <laughs> Brett's afraid, afraid of noodle arm Harry Potter. I don't, I don't do well with bone stuff. And that's his, and that's, but that's the absence of bone. And apparently, I don't do well with that either. <laughs> Bones should remain on the inside Bo- of your body. Nowhere and else. Nowhere else. And Lockhart proves that. Thank you for coming to our our Lockhart hate um, TED talk. <laughs>
Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening uh, to this chaotic episode, I think. <laughs> uh, much like Chamber of Secrets, there's no plot. Um, it's just foreshadowing for next week, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> where we will be discussing my favorite, personally, uh, Prisoner of Azkaban. I promise I will talk so much about this book. <laughs> um, yeah. With that, I'm Haley. I'm Brett. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. (laughs) Bye. All right, you've been listening to The Classroom, a United 2 production. Feel free to tune in to our parent station, 91.7 FN of Morgantown, West Virginia. There's going to be a new episode of The Classroom live on United 2 every Friday at 11 a.m. If you're out of our terrestrial reach, feel free to stream uh, United 2 at united2themoose.com. Easy enough. On our homepage, not only will you be able to stream the new alternative music, but you'll also be able to quickly find our podcast and many other great ones produced by some of our friends here. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll catch you all soon. Bye.